You're listening to the TheoEd Podcast. In our Brief Talks episodes, you can hear the talks from all of our live events, plus additional talks only available virtually. On today's Brief Talks episode, we welcome Dr. Yolanda Pierce, Dean of the Howard University School of Divinity and author of many books, including In My Grandmother's House, Black Women, Faith, and the Stories We Inherit. Her talk is entitled Salvation and Soul Food, Lessons from My Grandmother's Kitchen. My African ancestors did not come to these shores as empty vessels or as blank slates. In this ocean, hundreds, then thousands, then millions of people of African descent were brought through what I'm calling an involuntary baptism. During the transatlantic slave trade, this involuntary baptism, you see, something died and something was also born. My ancestors came to these shores and in cargo ships, human cargo. And when they got here, there was a cauldron and a cradle of early American religiosity. Part of how we understand this story is about the stripping away. And certainly there was a stripping away of these African peoples of languages and names and material objects and certain kinds of traditions. The stripping away, people think, of everything. But I want you to know that something survives the voyage. And so this cauldron that we have of these early Africans, soon to be early African-Americans, and they encountered these shores of North America and South America. Something like 20 to 30% of these Africans were practicing Muslims. Some significant portion of them were practitioners of traditional African religions, but a number of them were already practicing Christians. And I need you to know that because when my ancestors got to this shore, North America, they were not encountering the divine for the first time. They brought the divine with them. They brought the divine with them. And so what we see in this early American cauldron is the adaptation, the adoption, but also the transformation of American religion. So my ancestors went into the hush harbors, those secret places, those wilderness places. And in those hush harbors where they were left alone, they practiced They remembered. They poured out libations. They did the ring shout. They buried the dead according to customs that were ancient. They also went to church. They also practiced Christianity. 
but Christianity was being changed even as they were being changed. This cauldron produces what we call American religion, but I need you to know that it is what it is today because of my African ancestors. In the hush harbors, they were developing theology, systematic, deliberate, constructive. Do you know how I know? It's, it's in the music. It's in the songs. It's in the spirituals. They were developing a Christology. Who is Jesus? Oh, Jesus was Mary's little baby. So they sang about Mary's little baby. They sang about the exodus. They sang about the God of deliverance. Didn't my Lord deliver Daniel? They sang about heaven, but be clear, this heaven was a place of justice. Because as one of the spirituals says, everybody talking about heaven ain't going there. And so they're developing this systematic and deliberate and constructive theology in the hush harbors and in the wilderness and later on in the institutional churches. I want you to know that this faith was both praise and protest. It was praise because that's what it means to be people of faith, to thank God for where we are and who we are, to give honor and thanks for survival. It was also protests, protests against the condition of enslavement, protests against bondage, protests against all of the forces and powers and principalities that for 400 years kept people in bondage. And that praise and that protest meets. And it creates the institutional black church. That's where this part of the story I want to share with you starts. The institutional black church, the building of buildings, of churches, of schools, the creation of a theology, the creation of ways and practices of worship, all of this happening in that early cauldron of American religion. But the 20th century, where this part begins, is also about involuntary migration. And we often don't tell the story that way. Because if the transatlantic slave journey, that voyage, that Mayafa, was hundreds, then thousands, then millions, what you see in the 20th century after the end of the First World War and the Second World War are millions of African Americans leaving the rural South to places North and West. Millions leaving behind racial violence, leaving behind lynchings, leaving behind sharecropping, which was just slavery by another name. And so they left, by foot, by train, by mule. They went to places like Chicago. Chicago is simply Mississippi with snow. <laughs> they went places like New York and St. Louis. Some went west to, to California. They went to Philadelphia and Washington, D.C. in search 
of a promise. The institutional black church helped to make that promise a possibility. In Chicago, there would be churches. Churches would hang a white cloth outside of their window. And that white cloth was a signal to these migrants coming from Mississippi that we have room here. There's food for you here. We can help you find a job here. I mean, imagine, imagine that the church actually doing the work of the gospel. So they sit and they went and these migrants use the institutional church in search of the American dream. Part of the institutional black church is an official office which really has almost no parallel anywhere else. It is the mother's board. I gotta tell you about the church mothers. <laughs> the mother's board. The mother's board is an official ecclesial office. You are a church mother. That is like being a deacon or an elder or a trustee. The mother's board was comprised of older African-American women. The only qualification you needed for the mother's board was that somebody just thought you, was, you were old. That's okay. That was it. And you were on the mother's board. So these older black women, I want you to know, wielded substantial power. Let me put it that way. You see, the pastor's name might be on the building. The pastor's portrait might be in the lobby. But I want you to know these women were the real power brokers. They were the real authority. They say, go, you went. They say, stop, you stopped. And that's just what it was. And so we understand the biblical model, right? The biblical model was older women teach the young women. And so that's what I thought the mother's board would be until I opened my eyes and I could see the authority that they wielded. And I thought, hmm, something happening here. So you had this mother's board of which my own grandmother was a church mother. These women came from the rural South now finding themselves in these northern churches, in my case, a storefront church in Brooklyn, New York, and serving on the mother's board. These women that I'm referring to served six days out of the week, primarily as domestic workers. For most of their life, they took care of other people's houses and other people's children. That until the middle of the 20th century, 85% of African-American women were domestic workers. And so day after day, they were taking care of someone else's home, someone else's children. But Sunday came. And I watched my grandmother and the other church mothers put on their white put on their hats, put on their gloves, put on their shoes. And I watched them being treated with such dignity and respect, being called mother, being called sister. And I watched them work. So eventually, I had a question that I wanted to bring to the mother's board. 
because I knew I was seeing something that was more than just the faithfulness of these women. And they were. They were certainly faithful. They were certainly devout. But something else was happening. And so my question was this, what if this group of older black women, these church mothers, my grandmother, what if I was seeing in action the greatest theologians that this nation has produced? I need you to take the question seriously because by asking the question, I am upending everything that we traditionally understand about theology. And I'm a professional theologian. They pay me to do theology, okay? Can these women be theologians? Well, what would it mean if these women who lacked formal education could be theologians? It would mean that we would have to do theology differently. We would have to take the source material of their lives seriously. We would have to take what we had been labeling as mother wit and folk wisdom as serious theological reflection. It would mean that somehow God was revealing God's self through the lives of these older black women with a message for the church at large, for the entire body of Christ. So, in my grandmother's kitchen, where I spent all of my time growing up being raised by my grandparents, I realized that I was watching theology in action. The lights went off one day. I'm scared of the dark, Grandma. Don't worry. God does God's best work in the dark. What she did for me was upend the notions that I had imbibed of a white supremacist notion that there was light and there was darkness. God has a luminous darkness. And that was beautiful. In my grandmother's kitchen, with a pound cake in one hand and a Bible in another hand, my grandmother would say, you can't heal people if you don't feed people. In my grandmother's kitchen, we would talk about the parables and, and what they mean. And she says, if you're not willing to touch someone, you can't love someone. So I watched her wash feet. I watched her anoint people with oil. There was something that was happening here. There was a theology that was developing. It was deliberate. It was constructive. It was systematic. It was more than folk wisdom. What if this was the greatest theologian I had ever known? What if the source material of how we understand who God is and how God operates in the world was here in a kitchen in Brooklyn? And what if... My grandmother, like the generations of wisdom, women before her, like all women, were, in fact, the Theotokos, the God-bearers. That's a term we use for Mary as we talk about how Mary carried God in flesh in her womb, the God-bearer. But the term means so much more because it is Mary and the other women who are at the tomb and who bear the news of the gospel. What if what I was seeing were women bearing the gospel 
in flesh, generation after generation? What if that great cloud of witnesses included my grandmother, your grandmama, your auntie? It would change the way in which we would then take seriously this wisdom tradition that we've inherited. The food of choice in my grandmother's kitchen was soul food. And so that's what I learned to cook. That is my native food. I love it to this day. And I remember learning how to cook certain dishes and and how to chop certain vegetables. And, And I was thinking about the origins of soul food because the origins of soul food are connected to the history of enslavement in this country. Soul food, which is now served at your finest restaurants, I'm sure even here, soul food emerged out of the scraps, the bits, the pieces that were left over and were given to enslaved people. The lesser cuts of meat, the things you would kind of throw away. And out of those bits and pieces and scraps, they created food, food to feed people who worked from sunup to sundown. They would take that tiny little piece of meat and they would put it in a, in a batch of greens and they would make some cornbread. And somehow they were creating a feast with scraps. And so I watched that happen in my grandmother's house. I remember being the teenager and I would open the refrigerator and there would be nothing in there. And I'd close the door and I'd go sit. But hours later from that same refrigerator, she created a feast. And it all hit me. It all came together. This soul food, this grandmother's kitchen, this wisdom, this theology. My grandmother was a co-creator with God. God made from nothing everything. And I watched it week after week after week as from nothing, from scraps, from, from little bits of things. My grandmother made a feast. What does it mean for us today to stand here Those of us who know that we are broken, we are in pieces, we are just little scraps of something. And God simply saying to us, you are more than enough. And out of your life and the nothing that it feels like, I will make something out of the inferior things, the the lesser things, the the things that no one wants, the the marginalized, the oppressed, the disenfranchised, the the people on the margins, uh, those whose stories have been left behind, those with their backs against the wall, out of their lives, I will make something and I will call it good. Salvation and soul food. Lessons from my grandmother's house. Thank you. We hope you have enjoyed this brief talk. 
If you have suggestions for future Brief Talks or Big Ideas episodes on the TheoEd podcast, visit our website at theoed.com, that's T-H-E-O-E-D.com, to submit your suggestions. Mm-hmm.